0: A few years back, a young family started attending Calvary Church and uh, they had a uh, fine experience when they first got here. They enjoyed what was happening, but about a year and a half ago, suddenly a light went on in the wife's life about God. She just suddenly got it, like she saw something that she'd never seen before. and. Uh, tears running down her face and just excitement overjoyed uh, overflowing in her life and it was all new and she saw finally what people had been talking about in relation to God and Jesus and this love that God has for us. Well her husband was he was very happy for her. Uh, He was glad that this had become so meaningful to her and he himself was enjoying coming to church but To be truthful, he didn't quite get what the big fuss was about that his wife was experiencing. I mean, again, he was glad to be here. And if you had asked him, he certainly would be more for Jesus than against him. But he didn't really see. Well, that is until about a month ago. And then his eyes were opened. And suddenly he got it. And again, with tears in his eyes, saying, I understand now. I finally see God had revealed himself in such a way and made it clear that it wasn't just ideas floating around, but a real experience with God. And he got what his wife had been talking about, what we've been talking about, the idea of God and Jesus and this love, and it just, he got it, the lights went on, and you could see the difference in his face. What is it that causes that to happen? Or consider the person who talked to me after last week's sermon, she's been a Christian for a long, long time. But she uh, talked to me and said, you know, after last week, even though I've grown up in the church and I love the Lord, I, I had a new understanding of the Holy Spirit, it was like the lights went on. Like I finally got who he is and what it is that he's trying to do in my life and it was amazing. But what is it that causes that to happen? Whether it's in the case of somebody who is coming to see Jesus really for the first time or someone who's been a Christian for a long time who's coming to experience and to see new truths, what causes the light to go on so that it's not just words on a page or ideas in concept, but something that moves from your head into your heart and so you you get it and you understand and you see. How does that happen? Well, if you have your Bible, would you turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1, it's page 827. In the Bibles the church provides, we'd love for you to follow along with us. There'll be a Bible in the rack in front of you or underneath your seat. In Ephesians chapter 1, let me tell you while you're turning there, That in the book of Ephesians, we have been going through with the Apostle Paul a basic overview of Christian beliefs. But Paul is not simply interested in information transfer. He's not a professor in a college course just simply trying to communicate information. He wants this stuff to sink into our souls. He wants the light to go on, so to speak. So in the middle of talking about these amazing truths, he's talked so far about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, Paul takes a few verses out to address the issue of how these truths move from being simply words on a page to something that stirs deep within our soul. How does the light go on, so to speak? So what we'd like to do this morning is take a small one-week break from our series of going through basic Christian beliefs and answer the question with Paul, how is it that these truths can be real to us, that we can see, if perhaps even as for the first time? Well, look with me in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 15 to 23. Paul says, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also... Notice that Paul is talking here in verses 17 and 18 especially. He wants us, verse 17, to know God better. Verse 18, that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened. This is what we are talking about this morning. How does it happen that the lights go on? that we're able to suddenly see that this truth that we may have heard for weeks or months or years or whatever suddenly clicks and we get it. So that we're not simply saying, yeah, okay, Jesus, I get it, there's a cross. I I think I understand, but we actually get it. The lights are clear and we see and say, oh, now I know, now I experience. Well, Paul, that's his goal for us. But before he tells us how that happens, he gives us three things that he wants us to be able to see. And these three things are really a review of what he's been talking about and then what we've been talking about. We've covered three subjects so far in the book of Ephesians. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And here, Paul, in this passage is reiterating three things that connect to each of those three subjects. Now when we look through them, we went more broadly and we covered not just what Paul had to say, but also what other places in scripture had to say. Well here Paul just uses one statement to talk about each of those subjects. And the three things that he wants us to see begin in verse 18. The first one's in the middle of that verse. He says that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may, and here's the first one, know the hope to which he has called you. Now this is literally translated, the hope of his calling. And this idea is uniquely connected to the teaching on the person of the Holy Spirit. If you remember last week, We said not only is the Holy Spirit God's empowering presence for us today, he is also the guarantee of an even better tomorrow. That's what Paul's talking about here. The hope of God calling us. You see, Paul's been clear in Ephesians that we did not ultimately choose God. God chose us. And because God chose us not on the basis of anything that we did to earn that choice, Paul says, we got to understand the future that is now ours, that God has called us. And a way of showing us that he's called us is he's given us his Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our future. And Paul's saying, if you could just see what the future looks like, if you and I could just know what it is for God to call us and guarantee a greater future than we could possibly imagine. He said, how great would that be if we could actually see it and know it, and the lights would go on. The second thing he wants us to know is the next phrase, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And just like the first phrase, the hope of his calling, connects uniquely to the Holy Spirit, this phrase, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, connects uniquely to the person of Jesus. In order to understand what this phrase means, you have to see what it does not say. It does not say the riches of our glorious inheritance. What does it say? His. Who's the his that he's talking about? It's God. That what we're talking about here is the riches of God's inheritance. And who is God's inheritance? It's us. It's you and I. You see, the person of Jesus, you remember when we talked about him, we said that he was the fully divine, fully human savior of the world. The idea that he is our redemption, that he paid the ransom to rescue us from this world and to bring us into God's family. And what Paul is saying is that if you could only see that we are God's inheritance... We are his prized possession. We are what he most wants in life. Do you see what he's saying? That we are God's inheritance. That when you say to God, What are you most looking forward to in the future? It's you and I. The idea that he would have us to be part of his family. And Paul says, If you could just see that, if you could just see that we are his inheritance. There's a third thing he wants us to see, not simply with human eyes but with the eyes of our heart and that's in verse 19. And his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. If you remember back to our week when we talked about God, we said God is spirit, light, and love and that he eternally exists and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we said that God's chief activity in life is giving life. That's what this phrase is talking about, that God has the incomparably great power to give life, as demonstrated in his raising Jesus from the dead back to life. And Paul's saying, if you could just see for a moment how great God's power is. That he's able to redeem and to rescue and to create and to renew life. If we could just have our eyes open to see that, it would make all of the difference in the world. But how does that happen? How do these move from being simply words on a page so that we sit here and say, okay, Yes, we have a great future that's coming. Yes, God is excited that we're going to be part of his family. Yes, God is powerful and he uses that power on our behalf. That's great, I get it. What's next? How do we move from that to, oh my goodness, this is what God has done for us. How do we move to the point where the eyes of our hearts are enlightened? Well, verses 17 and 18 give the answer. See, Paul says, I keep thinking about you in my prayers. And verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. See, the way the truth moves from being words on a page or concepts into our actual hearts so that we see is through prayer. Prayer is how that happens. Now let me demonstrate what this looks like by using an illustration from the Old Testament. It's a story from 2 Kings chapter 6 that tells exactly, I think, what Paul's talking about here. In that story, it begins by talking about the king of Syria, who's at war with the kingdom of Israel. And the king of Syria is engaged in what we might call guerrilla warfare tactics. He's sending raiding parties in secretly into the kingdom of Israel, and what he's trying to do is find the king of Israel and his small security force, wherever they might be, and he's hoping that if he can find him on one of these raids, he might be able to attack him and to kill him. But every time he goes into Israel's territory, following up on information where he thinks the king of Israel might be. The king of Israel has already moved and is no longer there. And he begins, he goes to his advisors and he says, okay, there's got to be a spy here. How else could he know exactly where I'm going to strike and move in time? Who's the spy? And his advisors say, there's no spy. Do you know what's going on? It's the prophet Elisha. Elisha is telling the king of Israel your every movement. It's like he's a fly on the wall listening to everything that you say before you say it. And he goes and tells the king of Israel where you're going to be and the king moves before you get there. So the king of Syria does what any king does when he's faced with a problem. He marshals an army. And he decides, well, okay, let's, put, let's get this Elisha guy. If he's the problem, let's go get him. So he sends his army full of chariots and armed soldiers to Elisha's home city, the city where he's at. Now, this is not a walled city. It's not a fortress. It's just a small village where he happens to be staying with him and his servant. And the armies come to that village, and we pick up the story in 2 Kings 6, verses 14 and 16. Then the king of Syria sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha's servant, got up and went out early in the morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord. Now, that's a small L. He's talking to Elisha, not to God. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Elisha replies, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now at this point, Elisha's servant thinks Elisha has lost his mind. (laughs) What do you mean, more with us? One, two. There's an entire army out there. I mean, there's no warriors in the city. This is not a walled, defended city. There may be a few farmers But Elisha's servant is like, the math doesn't work here. I see hundreds of armed soldiers, and there's just the two of us. What in the world are you talking about? There are more with us than are with them. And so the story moves on to verse number 17. So Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he might see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, the army of God had encamped itself around Elisha. The problem was the servant couldn't see it. Notice this is not a response to the prayer. Elisha doesn't pray for help, and then the army comes. The army's already there. The problem is the servant can't see it and all of a sudden his eyes are open and he sees what Elisha's talking about. Oh, now I get it. (laughs) Now I get what you mean. There's more on our side than there are of them. That in between this invading army is the army of God, chariots of fire, ready to protect us and defend us. You see, up until this moment, when God opens his eyes, if Elisha had tried to say, don't worry, there's a whole army here. His servant would have been like, "Um, I I think I see them. Are there a few over there by the rocks? Are those shadows over there? Are those soldiers? But once God opens his eyes, then he sees. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter one. He too is praying that our eyes might be opened. You see, Paul is like Elisha. He's looking out on the scene and he sees something we're not seeing. And he says, if you could just have your eyes open that you might know the hope to which God has called you, that you might know how much he loves you, that you might understand how great his power is if you could just have your eyes opened. And we're like Elisha's servant who's saying, God, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure I see him. I think maybe he's out there somewhere or or maybe he's over there behind the rocks a little bit. Is that God? And so Paul is praying, oh, Lord, please open their eyes. And once our eyes are open, we say, oh, now I see. Now I understand. Now I get it. So I told you a story about this young family at the beginning of the sermon. See, in the wife's life, people had been praying for her, praying that her eyes would be opened. And one day God opened her eyes, and suddenly all of this idea and all of this stuff, it just clicked, and she understood and she saw as if for the first time like blinders had fallen from her eyes. I see now, I get it, I understand. Sure, there's more to the whole story, but yes, there he is, I see what he's doing. And she came home and wanted to tell her husband, and don't you see too? And the husband was like, oh, I think I see, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I'm probably, I, I think I see. But she began to pray for him. And others were praying for him as well. And then just a month ago, God opened his eyes and he saw. And all of a sudden, all of this stuff that's just words on a page. Oh, now I get it. Now I see. That's how we move from simply ideas and concepts to the reality of having our eyes open is that we pray. Notice Elisha is praying for his servant. Paul is praying for the Ephesians. We pray for others, asking them, Lord, open their eyes that they might see. This is the reason why we put so much emphasis on praying for those in your life who are friends or family members who don't yet know Jesus. Because what we're wanting is we're wanting their eyes to be open. The prayer we pray for them is Lord, open their eyes so that they might see. Because we can talk to them, we can argue with them, we can give them all sorts of reasons, we can present the best, most beautiful case for God. But unless they can see him, It won't make a difference. This is why we say it's more important to talk to God about people than to people about God. Of course, both are important. But the more foundational piece is that we spend time asking God, oh Lord, please open their eyes that they might see. This is the reason why the most important prayer that a parent can and should regularly be praying for a child is, oh Lord, open their eyes that they might see. Yes, we want to play for our children that they have good health and for their experience in school and about a future spouse or about situations they might be going through. But the most important thing that we pray for them is Lord, open their eyes, let them see who you are. If only, God, you could give them a vision for how much you love them, for the hope of your calling on their life, for the power that you have that's at work on their behalf to give them life. Lord, let them see, please. See, we think, well, but we're doing family devotions and we send in our kids to church and they're getting lots of good information But information's not the point. The information has to move from your head to your heart, and that only happens when we pray. Lord, open their eyes. Let them see. This is why the most important prayer that you can pray for a spouse or a Christian friend is, Lord, open their eyes. Let them see. You see, Paul in Ephesians chapter one is actually praying for people who are already Christians. He says, my prayer is so that you may know him better. Having your eyes opened is not a one-time event. Sure, it's true that at one point your eyes are opened and you see Christ in a new way and salvation comes to you, but that's a process that continues where your eyes are continually open. For this person who sent me a note after last week's sermon Her eyes were opened in a new way to the Holy Spirit. She's been a Christian for a long time. But for a spouse, a friend, somebody who already knows Christ, still the most important thing you can ever pray for them is Lord, open their eyes so that they may see more clearly, more deeply who you are. This is why the most important thing that happens here on Sunday morning is the prayer that takes place in preparation for this time. That all week long, there have been hundreds of people praying for this very moment saying, Lord, open our eyes so that we can see that all last night, through the night, Every half hour, there were people from this church praying, Lord, open their eyes so that we might see that before this service began, before the first service began, before the third service will begin, there will be groups of people praying, Lord, open our eyes so that we can see right now while I'm preaching, there are people downstairs praying, Lord, open our eyes so that we might see. We begin the sermon with prayer. We end the sermon with prayer. The reason is, is because otherwise it's just information. If you leave here today and don't just say, oh, I guess prayer's important, that sounds right, but actually say, ah, I get it, I see. Nothing happens until we ask God to open the eyes of others. If that happens this morning, it's because people are praying. Amen. This is how this works. What causes the light to go on? What causes somebody to get it? What causes somebody who has never seen to see in a new way? What causes somebody who's been a Christian for a long time to learn something new about God and love him more deeply? It's prayer.